Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Tom Ellis. Tom is a practice consultant from Texas with decades of experience in advising on anesthesia and other types of physician practices, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. In addition, Tom has generously offered to give away two free licenses of his physician career education platform at firstmedpractice.com to two lucky listeners. You're going to want to listen to the end of this episode to see how you can claim that prize. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Tom Ellis. Tom is a, a healthcare consultant with a, a, a consultancy which he founded, Ellis & Associates, based in Texas, and he is also the founder of firstmedpractice.com, which is a website designed to help residents and fellows uh, understand the business dynamics of medical practice before they end up taking jobs that are going to be very much impacted by the practices which they join. So Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, to get us started, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about the current scope of the work that you're doing? Obviously, there's a lot of alignment in the message that I'm trying to bring to the anesthesia and pain communities and a lot of the work that you've already done in helping physicians understand the business of medicine. Yeah, I, I started my consulting business um, over 25 years ago. And at the outset of my consulting business, uh, we were putting doctors into practice pretty much straight out of med school. And we were providing them with a, with a range of services that was almost at 100% of everything they needed. Uh, the only thing we did not do was hire their clinical people because we weren't obviously qualified to do that, not being physicians. And I continued to, to do that for a couple of years and then broke out into more of a general practice management consulting business where I was running practices and putting practices together, uh, dissolving them, bringing partners on, working out hospital contracts with a number of my clients. Uh, which led me into kind of a, an expanded look at the business of medicine. And I helped actually create a pathology company with one of my clients. It was a gynecological pathology company that's been tremendously successful. And found myself about 14 years ago, suddenly engaged in an anesthesia company. And I, I ran an anesthesia company that had a captive contract or an exclusive contract at a hospital here in Dallas. I ran that company for about 12 years. And we, similar to what I had done at the beginning of my career, we pretty much built that company up from the ground. And I can explain more about that as we go farther into the interview. Yeah, excellent. So there's a, a lot of things that I'm, I'm really interested to zoom in on here. So talk about, you know, you said you were responsible for running medical practices. So there's obviously right. a lot that goes into that, and it probably depends on the specialty exactly what that means. But give us a little bit of background about, you know, what are the different areas of consideration that you're addressing in, in your practice? Well, you know, I'm, I'm putting a couple of doctors into practice right now, and the service that I'm providing really, these are physicians who are, who are coming out of uh, corporate medicine who want to go out and practice on their own. So we are looking at, at everything from uh, real estate location to, to generate good demographics or good payer relationships, higher paying payer relationships, to um, the way we're scheduling our patients, to the range of services that we're offering. It enga I'm engaged in credentialing right now and for, for both of these clients. The marketing has become an extremely important piece these days as social media has you know, become, become so, uh, such, such a bellwether for the way many people make decisions. 
the staff hiring, the revenue cycle management, the billing piece, that's obviously one of the most important pieces as well. So it, it's, I don't want to say it's completely soup to nuts, but in these two situations, it, it truly is almost soup to nuts. Again, I'm not hiring the clinical people, but I'm working with them on the, on the operational staffing uh, of the back office. Got it. And so in terms of maintaining the operations, are you and your company doing that or are you bringing in other experts to sort of pick up the baton there? Well, the latter. What I've always done is try to surround myself with, you know, the best healthcare minds for uh, legal purposes, for accounting purposes, for billing purposes, for whatever. What I like to do with my clients is, is structure the practice uh, and do the strategic planning on the practice for the first 18 months. And then once the practice is open, I may be in the practice regularly for four to eight weeks, but my goal is for the, for the physician to understand enough about the business of medicine that working with the other experts that I bring in, they are able to, um, to let the practice move forward from a business standpoint in a way that doesn't uh, compromise their clinical time, gives them uh, a feeling of comfort, uh, gives them some metrics that they can that they can watch as the practice grows that can be watched and monitored um, and uh, create a, a very smooth working environment literally from the first day. Excellent. Okay, so you, you said the physicians you're working with right now are coming out of corporate medicine. I'm very interested in this. I It seems like not a week goes by when I get some person kind of drop me a line on LinkedIn or Twitter or elsewhere telling me a story of, well, there was another buyout and my practice is like, falling apart. It's not the place that it used to be. And I, in some cases, I want to leave medicine or I want to leave this practice or, you know, it's not that that happens all the time, obviously, but it, it's a consistent theme that keeps on coming up in the anesthesiology world that acquisitions, mergers don't always go as hoped. And then physicians are finding themselves trying to escape corporate medicine. I'm curious your perspective on that. Well, I, I think my experience is very much like yours. I have sensed for the last couple of years a dissatisfaction among many of my clients and former clients about the corporatization of medicine. And I, and I think you're, you mentioned buyouts. I think that's one of the key issues that seems to continue to come up but that the, you know, the investment firms in, in New York or in large markets come in and buy up medical groups. They obviously are buying up those medical groups to get a good return on their investment. And many of them are, are looking at a two to five year plan to hold the property and then turn it over and sell it. And usually the buyer is also looking for a good return on their investment. And at some point, uh, there's a compression in, in either revenue, in, excuse me, salaries, or in the way the operation is run. And it creates an environment where physicians don't feel that they have the business autonomy to really control their practices. Um, I have seen some examples where corporate medicine was very good, but um, I'm beginning to, to sense that there is more and more dissatisfaction. And I think for a long time, there was, you know, there was this cliche about the danger of private practice. And uh, it was almost, in my experience, it almost seemed like a PR campaign to make doctors feel uncomfortable about the idea of private practice, when in fact, private practice run properly can be not only rewarding personally and rewarding uh, from a professional standpoint, they can also be, you know, rewarding from a financial standpoint, but it has to be done properly. And, and the pieces to do it properly are much more in place now than they were, say, a decade ago. Inter I'm interested to hear you say that because, you know, depending on who you ask, 
some people say, well, the forces of consolidation and anesthesia are, it's like a, you know, a snowball rolling downhill and there's no way that we can even stop it, let alone go back. So I'm curious, your perspective, based on the things that you're seeing, the market dynamics that you're observing there in Texas and elsewhere and the positions you're talking to, what's your take on the consolidation trend in anesthesia right now? Um, I think my take is, at least here in the Dallas market, I think the consolidation has, for all practical purposes, run its course. We had some very large anesthesia companies here that were purchased by venture capital firms who then turned around and sold them another time. But there are still here uh, some large, uh, there's one or two large independent, still privately held or private practice oriented anesthesia company. There are a number of small anesthesiologist groups that are still independent. The, the leverage seems to be that the larger groups are able to go in and secure uh, exclusive contracts with, you know, with hospitals, but also because of their leverage and their coverage in a market, they're able to negotiate a little more um, successfully with payers. Um, I think that the, as, as we begin to change the way medicine is looked at, and anesthesia in particular, and the quality measures become more and more important into, into the evaluation of the, you know, the work that's being performed and the work that's being done and the money that's being paid, I think there's an opportunity for private practices to, you know, to get on that, on that train and provide good quality and, and still go to the payers, even though they don't have you know, 500 anesthesiologists or anesthesiologists and CRNAs, go to the payers and make a good argument that their rates should be what the, the larger group's rates are. Interesting. I want to dive more into that in a minute. First, let's talk about this, you know, your experience with this anesthesia group that you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago that you, uh, you became involved with and helped to build and scale over a period of years. Talk a little bit about that experience and, and how that unfolded. Why did you come in to do the work that you did and how did that play out? Well, um, the way I entered into that anesthesia environment was a little unusual. I had been working with some oncologists who I had put into practice at one or two hospitals here in town. And as part of that effort, I became uh, friends with a hospital president who uh, called me after she had been transferred to a facility south of Dallas and wanted me to come in and try and deal with an anesthesia problem that she had. The hospital facility had been running for many, many years, I mean, we're talking decades, had been running under a physician super, supervision model. So there was no anesthesiologist uh, MD or DO who was engaged in the, in the continuum of care there. Um, recently, they had brought a physician onto, into that anesthesia group. Uh, he had never run a group before, uh, but he was a very, very good anesthesiologist. Brilliant, in fact. When I entered it, I entered because the uh, hospital president liked the anesthesia group and she liked the direction it was going, but she was unhappy with the current owners and the way they handled some of their billing practices. So uh, I came in and uh, we set up an arrangement where the practice was purchased from its then owner for $1. Um, we held and had negotiated an exclusive contract at the facility we started out with, uh, with one physician and five CRNAs. All of the CRNAs had been, uh, been present for some time. All of them had preceded or their tenure had preceded the arrival of the MD. I found myself kind of in a situation where we were going to have to completely build an anesthesia company from the ground up. And I was the only one that had any business experience to do so. We, we expanded that company 
and grew it to include more CRNAs. That was our model. It was a CRNA model. Towards the latter half of my time there, we ended up adding some physicians. We added more CRNAs. And a few years before, uh, before I left, the hospital facility was closed as they opened a brand new state-of-the-art hospital no more than two miles away. So we were there for the transition to a new hospital, which became extremely successful very, very quickly. They brought back L&D, for example, which they had closed up for years. Uh, the emergency room was seeing an incredible volume of patients for the size of the hospital. They started to grow, bringing on more surgeons and, and more com complex procedures. Um, so we grew with it. And we, it was a pretty organic approach to growth. And we, we did a lot of things that I think no one was doing at the time because we felt like we could do a better job in, in reporting and controlling the, kind of controlling the business than uh, some of the larger groups were doing uh, by, uh, by a different strategy. For example, uh, one of the things that we did right off was we started doing not just patient satisfaction surveys, because hospitals do that. And if you've ever seen them, generally it's a four question questionnaire. And if you answer one question, uh, you know, it, it not in the affirmative or in the negative, then the whole thing is skewed and makes you look bad. We did more comprehensive patient uh, questionnaires. We also did a lot of surgical questionnaires because we were very concerned that we were doing things right surgically. We got very in entrenched with the politics of the hospital uh, and with the chief nursing officer. And uh, at one point, the MD, the, the senior MD in the group, was the chief of staff of the hospital. So we really tried to, to get as close as possible and we tried to control the flow of information so that it was, it was more reflective of what we were really doing and a little more complete and complex than what we were really doing. On the physician surveys, if we got, you know, if the physician said, I like this CRNA or I don't like this doctor, you know, we went to them directly and talked to them and said, okay, what are the problems? What can we do to create a better situation there? We were very, very concerned with, uh, with our turnover rate. We actually had the best turnover rate in the entire hospital system. So we showed the hospital right away that we could create the kind of efficiencies that were important to them financially. Uh, and it was, it was a tremendous relationship, very good relationship. Awesome. I'm, I'm very impressed with the, the sort of the data and analytics that you seem to have introduced with, with a lot of depth and a lot of providing visibility to the, the operations. Even as a smaller group, you know, the, I, I think that a bigger anesthesia group would say part of their value prop is we can come in and we have the systems and infrastructure and the people and the, the software to be able to provide that kind of data. And that's part of the, the benefit of, you know, maybe working with a bigger group. So to see how you have been able to do that with, you know, in the context of the few physicians and a few more than that CRNAs sounds very intriguing. Well, let me, yeah. And, and, you know, let me add one thing. And, and this kind of goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, practice management, revenue cycle management systems in place now that can, can help generate private practice activities. One of the things that we were concerned with was, and I'm sure you've heard this before, if you've talked to anesthesiologists, is the, the, the problem you have with, uh, with what I call doctor arrival creep where they're supposed to be there and you know start cutting at 7:30 and they don't show up until eight o'clock. And then they turn around and they say, well, it was anesthesia's fault. Well, to correct that problem, we we aligned ourselves with a proprietary billing operation 
and we were we were able to show you know when we when we were in the room when we were out of the room and then we were able to go back to the administration and say no 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 we were all there we were all there ready to cut this was the, the you need to talk to the surgeon about this because he's the one that's costing you a half hour surgical time it's not us yeah you know and when we did that it it, it changed the dynamic in the relationship between the CRNA or the, excuse me, the anesthesia providers and the surgeons. It suddenly gave us, I don't want to use the word leverage, but it put us in a position of respect yeah. where, you know, the facts are the facts. Yeah. So, you know, you're able to do those kind of things now. Uh, there are many, many software systems out there uh, that, that provide that kind of data to you that you can get without having to sell your practice and join a larger group. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, at the very beginning, Take us to that moment when, you know, you're talking to your friend, the hospital CEO, and they say, we've got this doctor that we like, the CRNAs are doing a great job, but there's something about the operations or the ownership that just isn't clicking. As you're stepping into that situation at the outset, and you're starting to roll up your sleeves and ask some questions, what questions are you asking? What things are you looking at? And as you're starting to try to move the needle, because, you know, you talked about you made great progress over a period of years. When you're trying to go from like zero to five miles an hour, what did that part of the process look like for you? Well, the first thing that we that we took a look at right away was scheduling. Um, what we found right from the outset was that the scheduling was all over the map and there was no concerted effort on the part of the administration to affect uh, really efficient scheduling for the, for the providers. So we had cases that would, you know, we. We had cases that would start at, you know, 7.30 and, would, and you'd have a room that was full until 10.30 and then that room would come back online at 2 and everything was being scheduled, I don't say everything, a lot of the scheduling was being done around the, around the, uh, the surgeons and what they wanted and it wasn't effective for the hospital. So one of the first things we went in and said was, look, we know that if, if, if we can schedule more efficiently, it's not going to cost you as much money because you don't have people standing around all day. Uh, you're going to get a lot more utilization out of your, out of every one of your ORs. Uh, and you're going to get a lot more utilization out of your, out of your anesthesia group, because right now the surgeons, the way, the way it's so haphazard that it's very difficult for you to bring in new surgeons who can conform to the, to the, the vacancies in the schedule. It just, you know, it's tough for a doctor to come down and do two procedures from, one to three in the afternoon and kind of blow his whole afternoon apart when he could be seeing patients, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the office. Um, so that was, that was the very first thing we did. Uh, along with that, we also put in uh, the kind of, of planning and structure that the business would need. You know, I did some two-year projections. We began to work with the hospital very closely on the, on the kind of physicians or surgeons that they wanted to bring in if we needed to uh, upgrade uh, certain certain CRNA knowledge the ba knowledge base of certain CRNAs, we did that initially. This hospital was was doing deliveries. We had some some employees who were not as well schooled in deliveries as we wanted them to be, so we sent them back to you know, to CME classes. Uh, there was a, quite a bit of mentoring that went on between the physician and the CRNAs. So it was it was a kind of a take no prisoners approach. I mean, we kind of hit everything we needed to hit. But the most important thing was the was this strategic planning on how we were going to interface with the hospital and how we were going to be able to grow our business by being a lot more efficient with the way we ran things, making sure the hospital was so we really had an opportunity to grow. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You came in and had a lot of, uh, you know, important, you could say, revolutionary ideas. And a lot of them were kind of outside of your uh, immediate, what I would call, sphere of influence. <laughs> uh, in other words, like looking at how the surgeons are functioning or even the scheduling, how that's managed. Like that's related to anesthesia, but it's not strictly an anesthesiological responsibility. I'm curious, how did you get buy-in? from the CEO and from the board and whoever else was, were the key decision makers at the hospital to be able to make these changes that were yeah, going to well, well, impact let me say, uh, Let me answer that question, but let me add one thing. I had worked uh, for you know 15 years uh, with a lot of surgeons. So I understood the kind of the, the, the surgeon frustration with the, with, with the operating theater and uh, had had to deal with that. You know, when we were recruiting physicians, for example, for some of the practices, the surgical practices, you know, we had to look at, you know, what's the surgical schedule? Where, where are we going to get our new employee placed in there? How are we going to do that? How are we going to make them efficient? How are we going to integrate them into their office? What we did was, to answer your question, we went to the hospital with the data and we went to the surgeons with the data. And we said to the hospital, you have nurses standing around doing nothing, waiting for cases to start, which is costing you money. We said to the surgeons, if you guys would be more efficient in the way you did your work, you'd have more more truly open block time in your office. So you'd be able to see more patients, which would drive more surgeries to the OR. So a lot of what we faced, it was kind of the sleepy little hospital mentality. And what we did was we tried to pattern ourselves on, on a larger operation. We had some friends who were with large hospital groups who we talked to. Uh, we became very close friends with the chief of anesthesiology for the entire hospital system. And uh, we were very aware of many of the problems that had been existing because he was fielding calls from the hospital all the time, from the hospital administration. You know, there's this problem with anesthesia, there's that problem with anesthesia. We wanted to completely eliminate that, which we did within a year. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a multifaceted approach, but with the hospital, it was based on efficiency, and based on the analytics we could provide to them. Yeah. So I'm sure there's some people out there listening who are thinking, our ORs sure do seem to be running inefficiently. And it's great to hear Tom say, yeah, you just take the data to the administrators and they can't deny the data. And obviously that has an underlying assumption that we can access data, that the data has enough integrity to it to be able to actually tell a story. So talk a little bit about was the data there and you just sort of gathered it or did you have to put some things in place to be able to start collecting? Well, it was, you know, it was pretty obvious to get, get surgical reports out of the hospital to see how, how the ORs were being utilized. I mean, and, and how, much, how much of the uh, time available was actually being used every single day. Um, one of the problems that they had with, with this particular facility was the surgeons were just scheduling elective procedures all over the map. I mean, they do them at, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock, you know, very, very, uh, very, very much, very comfortable for them, but very costly for the hospital to have people standing around. So that was the first thing we did. Then we began to look at what I referenced earlier through this proprietary billing system. We began to look at start and end times. And we began to compare start and end times for cases with some of the national averages. So we would know, for example, we, we had, I'll give you a good example. We had a physician that came in, um, a surgeon that came in, and she um, was very interested in, in doing one particular type of surgery, but because she was kind of the new kid on the block in her group, she got a lot of different types of surgery. Some, some surgeries that she hadn't done in a long time, just as you know, anyone that goes to fellowship, they, they don't do every surgery every day. Um, and she had 
a extremely long time for uh, gallbladders. So, you know, we went to the administration and we said, look, this physician, good surgeon, but she needs to be mentored. She is costing you money because we are tying up, you know, it should take 30 to 40 minutes and she's taking two to three hours because she's just not familiar with it. That's costing everybody money, including us. I mean, we can only bill up to a certain amount of time uh, and not and not end up being audited on a regular basis. And so, you know, we worked with with that surgeon and the administration and her employment group to improve that environment and bring that, you know, bring her case times down. And I also noticed that you talked about, you know, questionnaires that were sent to the surgeons. So talk a little bit about, you know, there's, I would say, like a stereotypically potentially challenging dynamic. Yeah relationally between anesthesia and surgery. Yeah. So talk about how you built bridges and collaborated with surgeons in order to get buy-in from them to, to in institute some of these changes. Well, you know, from the very outset, stepping into an environment where the surgeons had been providing physician supervision over CRNAs, we were kind of behind the eight ball because obviously a surgeon knows a whole lot more than a CRNA. And uh, some of the surgeons at this particular facility had been there for years and years and years. They had, you know, extreme seniority and, and tenure and all those kind of things. And, uh, you know, many of them had, you know, kind of the surgeon's attitude that it's, it's my way, my way is the right way, regardless of how I do it. Um, what we did, one of the, one of the first year goals for us was to take the anesthesiologist, the MD that was sitting at, at the top of the, of our company and have him interface with the surgeon's in a way that they would begin to really understand the medical role that he had and the risk and responsibilities he had to, uh, to provide a service that was also risk-free for them. And that he really was qualified and talented, and this, this guy was really smart, um, that he really could evaluate patients and could say from a, a really strong position of analytics, this patient is not ready to go to surgery. It's just not ready to go. You can't take them. In the old days, that person would have gone to surgery because the surgeon would have said, we're going to do it. So we had to, to identify the kind of the knowledge level of the MD and make the surgeons understand and respect that. And we had to do that with the administration too. So that was the first thing. We subsequently followed up with these, you know, surgeon questionnaires where we, we usually there was a 25 question questionnaire where we tried to really dig down into the services that were being provided, not, not only in the operating room, but, you know, the post-op stuff that was done, all the qualifications, the H&Ps and all, you know, all of that pre-surgical stuff and how the patients were being handled, you know, I'm sorry, pre-op, all the pre-op stuff. And then also all the post-op stuff, you know, the follow-up we had and was there feedback coming to the, to the, to the surgeon's offices that, you know, patients weren't being followed uh, after their surgeries, uh, you know, what their pain levels were, you know, those kind of post-op questions that, that typically come up. So by being much, much more sophisticated in the, in the questionnaires, we presented ourselves as really understanding and knowing uh, what the, you know, the key buttons were for surgeons that they wanted to make improvements in so that their patients were happier across the board. And so you're instituting these changes over time. The hospital is buying in, the surgeons are buying in, uh, ORs are getting more efficient. And this contributed to you probably needing more anesthesia staff 
to be able to start doing more surgeries. Is that kind of how the growth started? Yeah, it did. And, you know, when, when they brought, they, they terminated uh, labor and delivery about three years into my time there. And then um, they brought labor and delivery back in a very big way when they opened the new hospital. That complicated our mission considerably because uh, with, no, with no labor and delivery, you know, you're pretty much working nine to five. Uh, and then you have emergencies, of course. But with labor and delivery, you're working 24-7. So we did have to bring more people on. We had to work out a, a better scheduling system. The hospital at that time really wanted us to have physician coverage for L&D, which didn't mean in the hospital. But we needed to have somebody close by. That was, you know, another complexity we had to work out. We were, as the, as the new hospital facility grew, the surgery schedule was growing as well. You know, they were starting first thing in the morning like they always do. And we had typically ended cases around, you know, maybe two o'clock in the afternoon. Now we were doing non-elective cases, oftentimes up until, you know, five, 5.30. So it was much more complex. We did have to add a lot of people, uh, but, you know, we figured it out. We just figured it out. We worked with the hospital. We worked with the surgeons. Uh, we made the hospital understand that we were not in a position to just provide everything for free. They couldn't just have people sitting around, a physician sitting around doing nothing. It was very costly to do that. And they were great in working with us that, in that way because it was financially efficient, more efficient for them too. Right. So talk about the transition. What was the facility like? You know, you said it was like a little bit of a sleepy hospital environment. Yeah. And then you said it was a state-of-the-art facility. It was the newer hospital that was open that you sort of moved the staffing to. So how was the, how are the facilities different? How was the the OR like OR number different and and the types of cases you said the L and D was coming online at the new facility? Like how did that impact your operations and the moving parts for you to make sure that there was no uh, you know quality issues or staffing issues during that transition? Well, um, to call this place a sleepy little hospital is probably uh, is probably not a true description. It was probably a little worse than that. Uh, they had, as I recall, they had four ORs. They, the facility itself had not been significantly upgraded probably in 10 years. I mean, they were keeping up with things, but they weren't, you know, buying new equipment and, and making a, a big move because I think the owners of that hospital were a little unsure as to, you know, how valid that market was going to turn out to be for them and were reluctant to, to really invest. When they brought the new hospital on, you know, there were six ORs that were finished out. I think there were two or three ORs that were not complete. I mean, they were finished out, but they weren't, they weren't completed from an equipment standpoint. So there was the opportunity for growth there. Um, there were three L&Ds. So suddenly we had, you know, the potential to have three women, pregnant women there, you know, waiting to deliver. Um, as I said, the emergency room grew tremendously. So the, the, the funneling of patients from the emergency room through to surgery, uh, that became much, much more complex. It was a much larger emergency room, probably twice the size of the old one. So yes, it, it, it did add a, a very different level of, of, of complexity and the coverage requirements were significantly expanded. And so were you able to staff up and, and find good people who are a good fit at the time of the need, I know that's, I mean, that's a huge challenge in any business. Healthcare is no different, like finding good people to, to get the right people on the bus, so to speak, who are going to be part of your answer. Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we, we wanted to do early on when we first started was align ourselves with, with, the, with the hospital 
in a way that gave us plenty of advance notice about new uh, surgeons, new physicians that they were bringing on. And so we would have the opportunity to do what you just said. We'd be, have that time frame to staff up. We were real lucky because we had a chief CRNA who was um, a, he had been a uh, had CRNA instructor in the Air Force. And we had a couple of other military people, CRNAs, as well as our, you know, very, very brilliant MD. Um, and so we, we had the time um, in advance of the new hospital. Of course, of course, they had to build it and that took a year and a half. We had the time to really go out and recruit very, very well. Um, our, our, probably our biggest challenge was not hiring CRNAs and, and qualifying them because there were a lot of very good candidates around and a lot of people who, who you know, back to the corporate medicine conversation, who had fallen into situations in corporate medicine they didn't like. They wanted to work for a smaller group, more of a family type environment or be more in more of a, of a rural type environment, the hospital environment where like this hospital was. Um, the MDs were more difficult because the MDs, we, we didn't really need them there all the time. It wasn't like we had three MDs on staff every time. We had to have one MD uh, there all the time. And then if we had more than a certain number of rooms open, they wanted to have a second MD who was on call. That was a little more complex. And it took us a little, a little bit of time to figure out. But we ended up, again, finding, finding MDs who, who were very happy to work that schedule and not be working a corporate medicine type of you know, schedule where they were you know, working every single day and moved around from facility to facility. Yeah. In terms of, uh, and I don't know if how comfortable, I'd be glad to hear whatever you're willing to share about this in terms of compensation for your group versus what you would perceive in the corporate medicine world. And in terms of autonomy, which is one of the big draws to private practice medicine, how, how did your group stack up against other, you know, local or, you know, maybe statewide call it competition in anesthesia? Well, um, I think we I think we stacked up extremely well. Um, one of the things we did not do, we did not hire um, mid levels right out of training. They had to have at least five to six years of experience. So uh, you know, in terms of compensation, I mean, at that time, I think you know, starting salaries for for folks coming right out of their program, you know, they were a hundred and 25, maybe 130, $140,000. Our pay rate, our pay range was more in the starting salary of about 180. And we actually had a number of people who were being paid 200. Um, there was a very, very significant benefits piece to the, to the compensation. Uh, one of the best I've ever seen uh, that really was uh, comparable to any large corporate employer, uh, anesthesia employer. Um, but we demanded a lot out of our employees. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't like they just showed up for work. I mean, uh, there was a, a lot that we, we, we wanted them to do. The knowledge level that, they, that we required of them was high. Uh, so I think from the standpoint of the mid-levels, we were paying almost the, the same amount of money as was being paid here in the big Dallas-Fort Worth market. And we were paying it in a rural market 30 miles away. In terms of the physicians, you know, we, we looked at MGMA and Sullivan Cotter and, you know, all of those, those groups that provide physician salary information. So we had a good idea of what was being offered everywhere. We had to have that to compete, in, you know, in the marketplace when we went out to recruit. And we were paying uh, salaries there, again, that were very similar to what physicians were making here in the Dallas market who were working similar schedules. Um, so 
we realized that to, to bring on the level of people we wanted to bring on, we were going to have to pay. Uh, we were going to have to pay big city money to get that that high quality, and it paid off. So, uh, as as far as other you know groups listening in who are thinking, I love the the data driven approach. I love the emphasis on high quality staffing. You know, what types of uh, you know lessons or words of encouragement might you give to somebody who's trying to either revamp or improve an existing practice in some of these ways? I think a lot of that depends on what the makeup of the practice is. You know, if it's an all MD model, it's very different from an all MD model and the model that we had using all the, the CRNAs, the mid-levels that we used. Uh, one of the things that was important to me, uh, and this was based on my experience, you know, in running and working with, with other private practices, non-anesthesia practices, was that we have some, some real respect for, we showed real respect for the CRNAs and the work that they did. Um, at the time, you know, I got involved with this anesthesia company, CRNAs were not looked on very favorably. Uh, the CRNA model was just being introduced to Dallas. Uh, CRNA only hospitals were prevalent, you know, all around the state, um, which was a you know, huge risk that was being uh, taken by those facilities without, without an MD involved. And, you know, we, we tried to treat it, I mean, I hate to sound like a cliche, but we tried to treat this more like a family environment where everybody really respected everybody. And uh, if there were deficiencies in abilities, no one was looked down on. Everybody wanted that, wanted that person to, you know, increase their knowledge base and, and get better. Um, we paid well. We, we didn't nickel and dime everybody. We tried to provide a benefits package that we thought was kind of ethically and morally right. Um, you know, we had great insurance. We had a 401k. We had short and long-term disability. You know, we, we created an environment where, where these people felt like they were respected, they were being paid properly, and they wanted to stay there for a long period of time. We, the turnover was the one thing that we wanted to avoid at all costs. Um, I think in a lot of anesthesia companies, you know, that are, especially some of the larger groups, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's that level of attention to detail in the way they handle their employees. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, well, as we wind down here, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about firstmedpractice.com and the work that you've done there. So obviously you're drawing on your years and years of practice consulting experience and seeing all these different, different types of specialties, practices, and you're trying to equip residents and fellows to be able to make informed career decisions in that context. So talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there. Well, the genesis of, of, of First Med Practice really uh, started probably 20 years ago. And, um, you know, what I was finding was I was meeting more and more physicians who were very unhappy with the positions that they were in. They had either uh, taken a position uh, right out of their residency or their fellowship, and, you know, they hadn't really vetted the employer. They looked at a, at a contract offer. They said, wow, look at that salary and look at those benefits and look at that signing fee. And they sign on the dotted line. And then they got into a working environment that really didn't work for them. And, you know, they weren't happy and they didn't feel productive. And, they, you know, there was a lot of dissatisfaction. Um, I, I have continued to see that over the last 20 years um, with a number of physicians who have come to me, uh, including some of the ones that I'm working with now and said, you know, I, I really, I'm really not happy here. I want to, I want to do something different. So as I, as I took some time to kind of ponder all of the experience I'd had two years ago, um, had a little time off and I started thinking about 
you know, one of the biggest problems that I've seen and, and this, the idea of vetting and analyzing uh, employment offers and employers was one thing that I didn't find anyone in the marketplace doing. And I still don't. I went to see some of the recruiting firms, recruiting firms, you know, their attitude was we're working for a commission. Basically, we want to place somebody and we get a fee after they leave us. You know, that's it. They're they're gone. So first med was concepted around uh, 12 modules and each module contains a specific topic that I have found to be very important when considering uh, a new position, be it you're leaving an existing job or you're coming right out of your out of your training. The, the, the platform itself, the 12 modules, really applies not only to residents and fellows, but also to nurse practitioners, and CRNAs. I mean, same people. To me, nurse practitioners and CRNAs, they're not physicians, but they have the same issues as physicians uh, when it comes to employment. Um, and so the platform was launched um, back last year around Thanksgiving and you know, had very, very good response to it so far. I think I'm filling a, a market niche that has not been filled before. And I'm using all of my decades of experience and bringing that to the, to the content of first med practice. Awesome. Yeah. And so uh, for our listeners, if you go to anesthesiasuccess.com slash 40, we're going to link to firstmedpractice.com as well as some other resources that we've referenced here. And I spoke with Tom before the show and he has generously offered to, uh, to give two free licenses of his ebook and his course to uh, the first two people that want to leave an honest review of this podcast on iTunes. So go ahead and go to iTunes, go to Anesthesia Success, tell us what you think. Hopefully you like us <laughs> and then email me at justin at anesthesiasuccess.com and say, Hey, this was me. This is what I left. And, uh, and I will connect you with Tom. Tom will then connect you with uh, his resources over there at first med practice. And, uh, he and I are very much aligned in our desire to equip physicians to be able to make, uh, informed career choices, to be informed about those decisions before they have to make them <laughs> rather than learning from the school of hard knocks, hopefully learning from the school of firstmedpractice.com and being more well-equipped. So, Tom, thank you very much for, uh, for that kind offer. You're welcome. Uh, and in wrapping up, uh, are there any parting words, resources, things that you would point us to, Tom, that uh, either attach to some of the discussion today or that you would encourage physicians to check out as they're trying to build successful careers in anesthesiology? Well, I think, you know, mid-levels, physicians, DOs, you know, everyone, the training program, for, for all of those providers is, is extremely rigorous and it doesn't provide a lot of time to, you know, to spend at the fish, uh, surfing the internet to read, you know, medical economics and healthcare monthly and, you know, all of these different publications. But I, I think that, that physicians need to understand that uh, unfortunately, when they enter the world of business, of the medical business, they are looked at uh, as a revenue generating source. Uh, the old days where physicians and every, everybody was with the respect and the levels of respect uh, were a little more closely drawn, they've kind of gone away. And if you're working for a big company, you know, they want to see some return on the investment. And you need to understand what that means when you're getting ready to walk into a job. If uh, for CRNAs, for example, you know, I've known of CRNAs who have, uh, you know, basically been running all over town. They start working and they spend tremendous amounts of time going here and there to do a few cases here, a few cases there. Yeah, it may be great. That may not be what they want. Same thing with uh, with anesthesia MDs and DOs. You know, it's a, 
so you need to you need to make a better a better assessment of the the working environment you're going into. Uh, obviously, salary and benefits are extremely important, and you know, with medical school debt, they you know they're high on the priority list with someone coming out of their training. But the thing you don't want to do is make a mistake. Right now, uh, about 30% of the physicians who take jobs out of residency fellowship uh, leave those jobs within three years. And the disruption factor that that causes is just enormous, not only to the physician who typically has to pick up and move you know, 20 miles away because he has a non-compete, but also to the hospital who may lose a, a, a surgeon or may lose a very valuable provider as well as the patients who've come to develop a relationship with that provider. Um, that's one of the things First Med tries to address, to, to eliminate that so that when you enter into, the, into a new job, there's an understanding and there's the, the real ability to create both uh, job satisfaction and some job longevity as well. Excellent. Couldn't agree more. Uh, well, Tom Ellis, thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.